ever since I started looking into this literature, I felt that it has great relevance even to myself, thinking of why there isn't more women in leadership positions. This idea of leader categorization and how it's a two-step process. So the first step is the categorization by others that a woman is leader-like. But the second part is that the woman also has to see herself as leader-like and be willing to take on the leadership positions. <laughs> I've been asked to take on leadership positions in the past in my professional associations and my first reaction is to say no. What about that person and that person and, and so on. But thankfully my sponsors and the advocates in my network were very mindful to say look you can do this. You can do this. And she is doing it. Currently leading a large team at the Institute for Management and Innovation, which boasts no less than six graduate professional programs, the home of dozens of faculty members, some cross-appointed over eight of UTM's departments, and nearly 30 administrative staff. The guest on today's View to the U podcast, Professor Sue Min To, talks about, among other things, the research that she has done in gender in the workplace, particularly in the area of women in leadership roles, something that has particular relevance for Su Min's own current situation. In the summer of 2017, she took on the role of Director of University of Toronto Mississauga's Institute for Management and Innovation, also known as IMI, where she is helping to foster this expansive team for continued success and future development as IMI continues to evolve. We will also cover a range of topics in relation to scholarship, such as the work Su Min has done in expatriate management, the integration of foreign trained professionals within organizations, and because it's a word that gets used a lot, what innovation means to her. Hello, and welcome to View to the U, an eye on UTM research. I'm Carla DeMarco at U of T, Mississauga. View to the U is a monthly podcast that will feature UTM faculty members from a range of disciplines who will illuminate some of the inner workings of the science labs and enlighten the social sciences and humanities hubs at UTM. Sue Minto is an associate professor of organizational behavior in the Department of Management at the University of Toronto, Mississauga, with a cross-appointment to the organizational behavior and HR management area at U of T's Rotman School of Management. In July 2017, she was named the director of IMI for a three-year term. Her research focuses on understanding knowledge transfer, the workplace experiences of immigrant professionals, and female leadership. Su Min is a highly regarded academic and an experienced administrator who has held a number of leadership positions in international scholarly organizations as well as at the U of T, including serving as associate chair of UTM's Department of Management. I understand your research touches on many areas, including the experiences of immigrant professionals in the workplace, knowledge transfer, and something called expatriate management. And so I'm wondering if you can define what expatriate management means in layperson's terms, but also talk a bit more about your overall program of research with perhaps a couple of examples of your current projects that you might be working on. Yes, so my research does span quite a broad range of topics, and one of my earliest research programs was 
was in what you just said, the expatriate management. Expatriate management really is the management of a unique group of employees often found in a multinational organization or corporation or enterprise with a headquarters in a certain country and now is looking to expand to another country. And so as a result of that, these organizations often have to send employees whom they call expatriates to these other countries to head their subsidiaries in those nations or to bring expertise in a certain technology or process. And so as a result of this globalization and the need to move employees from one location to another, a whole literature on expatriate management came about because as organizations start to realize that it's not so easy to uproot an employee from one country and expect them to be successful quickly in another country because of cultural differences, because of relocating of their families to a completely new environment, um, the integration of this employee into the organization and the culture, into working with people from that culture creates a lot of challenges for these expatriates. And so expatriates, traditionally, we think of them as someone who's been assigned or relocated by their company to another location. And so this literature on expatriate management was really focused on looking at how we can ensure this expatriate is successful when they get relocated to this new place. So how can we select the best person for this job? How can we compensate them in a way that would motivate them to do this job well and to help them be successful? What type of training they would require? There's a lot of research on cultural sensitivity training, leadership training, the training of even their family in terms of language. They're going to a country with a different language. My interest in this literature and this research really came about from my own background as being on the other side of expatriate management. So I'm originally from Singapore, and Singapore is a huge major host country location, one of these very popular subsidiary locations for multinationals. And so when I was an undergrad, I worked in one such multinational organization, and I would see the differences in how employees who are holding the same job, but one of these two people, for example, would be an expatriate and they would be treated quite differently in terms of compensation, in terms of promotion opportunities and training. And that made me wonder how that plays out in the organization and the potential resentment that the locals or host country nationals would feel towards the organization and even to that expatriate because they could be similarly qualified and performing the same jobs but being treated quite differently from the organization. And so when I started my PhD, I looked into that question a bit more and I realized there wasn't really much of a literature in there. And so my research was really focused on the perceptions of host country nationals of expatriates and of the organization and what those perceptions lead into. And that, in fact, my argument was that those perceptions and the differential treatment that host country nationals perceive can actually be quite critical in determining the success of the expatriate. So we're not just looking at how we pay them and how we train the expatriates and how we motivate them, how we select them. And we've just been missing this important piece of the puzzle in that we haven't looked at how the host country nationals are looking at this interaction and how they're being treated by the organization. And so my work really helped to turn the attention on the locals and to look at what the organization is doing that might actually be inadvertently hurting the success of the expatriate. So are you still then on this? Are you diverged a little bit from... So I have diverged a 
a bit, I started getting really interested. And when I moved up to Toronto, the issue of immigration and the integration of foreign trained professionals was a big topic. And so I became really interested in looking at this dynamic between the local and the foreign professional and how that plays out here in this context. And in Toronto and Canada, that expatriate is now it's a bit different. So the foreign trained professionals we see here often self-initiated expatriates. That's what they're called in the literature where they decided that they're going to move to another country and they look for a job here or maybe they've already applied for a job and that's successful and they're moving over to Canada. So it's not that they got moved by their company, exactly. they have taken that step. Exactly. And they have a rather different set of challenges because it's not within the company and there isn't this option to move back to headquarters or wherever they came from. It's a quite different set of challenges. So when I came up to Toronto, I started working with these adult learning centers in Mississauga. And what they were doing was to provide employment uh, services and education to foreign trained professionals who are looking for work in Canada. And so they go through a program that spans several months and they're taught interviewing skills, they're taught about Canadian culture, they're taught how to write a resume and how to improve on their language skills as well. And so part of this program was a co-op placement. So these foreign trained professionals were placed into various organizations in the community and they try very hard to match their expertise or their training in these jobs. And so I was really interested to look at what those interactions were like between these foreign trained professionals and their organizations and their new co-workers in this environment. So my research started by looking at ways in which cooperation can occur between the two groups. What would encourage that cooperation? However, in one of my focus group interviews, there was this one person who talked about how he felt like his boss was ridiculing him at work. And he was visibly unhappy with that experience. And he was telling the instructor that he said this thing. And I felt really insulted. I was really unhappy. And the instructor just kept telling him, like, don't worry. You know, that's just how it is. You know, this is, he was just making a joke, right? You know, you're overreacting. But that didn't change how he felt about that interaction. And so that was such a compelling story that got me really interested in looking at now the negative interactions that could occur. So I started collecting data and looking at what we call social undermining in the workplace. So of this low-lying type of negative behavior, but the person who's experiencing that behavior views it as something as intentionally hurtful, sort of a negative intent. Even if that person who is saying those words or behaving in that certain way doesn't see it that way, but the recipient experiences it as something that's intentionally harmful. So I became interested in sort of this dark side of social interactions or adverse relationships in the workplace. They don't happen a lot. They tend to have a very low base rate in the workplace, but when they do, they are quite damaging to the individual. And so I was really interested in looking at how those interactions, when they did occur, affect the future career success of these foreign trained professionals. That's so interesting. But I'm wondering if you've seen a significant shift in the workplace with some of the things that you've studied. And like, are people more aware of things that they say that could be a negative? 
Yeah, so I think there's greater awareness now and can call it sensitivity to social interactions in the workplace. And I think this has come up a lot in the media in the last few years about interactions that we have at work that we are perhaps inadvertently displaying behaviors or displaying certain attitudes that are not professional, right, or are not inclusive. And I'm really interested in through these negative behaviors, partly because their impact is far greater than than positive interactions when someone experiences something negative at work and that has profound implications for their well-being. And yeah, so I think what I've seen change is this increasing attention given to negative interactions at work because they do occur and they are very harmful and it's led to a lot of interest in what we call even abusive supervision, various forms of negative interactions like social undermining, incivility in the workplace, and bullying. There's so many forms of, I think, negative interactions from very low-level, insidious types of behaviors to very overt and severe types of negative interactions. And I do see in the field, there's much more interest in these interactions. And so my research in these negative interactions have actually branched off into looking at incivility in the classroom in the university context, in particular student incivility. These things are very low-level and they don't occur frequently, but I think, again, incivility Civility can also be in the eye of the beholder. So some people might not think that students having their laptops on and working on some other things is incivility, but others might. And there's some research that suggests that because of these behaviors of student incivility, that breeds what we call education light. And so professors will come up with ways to avoid potentially having any sort of negative interactions with their students. We also ask about harassment, sexual harassment. Again, we find very low levels of that but what we're really interested in is looking at how professors respond and cope with those type of behaviors and ultimately I think we would like to develop even some kind of intervention or training for instructors to manage those yeah. behaviors and we're trying to determine what are more effective ways how they're perceived by students. I thought some of your work focuses on the experience of females in the workplace mm-hmm. and so I just wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah so some of my research in recent years have focused on gender and leadership. And I have to say, I tried to avoid those topics as a student and researcher because I felt like those were really quite difficult topics to tackle, gender and leadership. But the opportunity came quite serendipitously and we looked into the question of women leadership across cultures. And so we just had a very simple question. We wanted to know if culture affected the emergence of women leaders. And so what we found was, in fact, it does to some degree. And so we examined this aspect of culture, which is known as cultural tightness. And that's the extent to which a culture has very strong norms, pervasive set of norms, and also has severe punishments and enforcement of those norms within a culture. So that would be a strong or what we call a tight culture. On the other side, we have a loose culture where there are very few norms or this heterogeneity in what is acceptable behavior. And there are no punishments for variance in their behaviors and not conforming to norms. And so Singapore would be higher on the tightness scale where we have very clear social norms and really strong enforcement of those norms. And on the other side of the spectrum would be a country like Netherlands where there are much looser laws about drug use, for example. And so we found that cultures that were tighter had fewer women emerge in leadership positions in politics or in business, whereas looser cultures had higher rates of women 
and leader emergence. And so we attributed that to how tight cultures tend to be more resistant to change. And the idea of women leaders would be considered as change in our ideas of what makes a leader, what a successful leader looks like. And so tighter cultures tend to still be rooted in a very masculine view of leadership. Whereas in looser cultures, the opportunity for change or looking at leadership in new ways, it's more likely to occur because this masculinity in leadership is not so much enforced or shared uniformly across the culture. So we found that trend. But at the same time, we found that in tight cultures that had gender egalitarian practices, and they would actually be as successful or more successful than a loose culture because in a tight culture, when practices are implemented, they are implemented more effectively because there are strong norms and there are rules and societies are willing to enforce those rules. You can think about Norway, for example. They came up with a 40% gender quota and that came with sanctions. If a company did not fulfill that quota, there would be punishments. Whereas in looser cultures, where there is that motivation and desire to increase women in leadership, but those desires don't come with sanctions. And so the example of Canada, there's reluctance to implement quotas and Canada's not unique in that sense. And when there are quotas, they have no teeth behind those quotas. If you don't fulfill those quotas, the worst thing that happens to you is that you have to write a letter of explanation. And so as much as people would like to do it, unless you have those sanctions behind them, it's not likely that you'll see change quickly. Where does Canada fall on this tight versus loose spectrum? So Canada was a norm um, based on the data that's available, but I would suspect they're closer on the loose end of the spectrum. The United States is somewhere in the middle. They're moderately loose. So what I see, though, is that Canada is displaying a very loose approach to building women leadership in either politics or in business. And so a country like Norway, where they were ready and people were willing to accept those strong sanctions, they saw success quite quickly. You're sort of touching on the fact that Justin Trudeau, when he came into power, he said he was going to have a more fair representation on members of parliament. But I don't know how much that's enforced or... But again, you still hear stories in Canada of women being underrepresented on, like, say, Mm -hmm. boards and in positions of power. Yeah, and the change will be quite glacial unless we do come in and say we're going to enforce this quota. Short of that, people have predicted it would take, like, 150 years to get anywhere close to parity. And it's just been moving really slowly. So the benefit of being in a tight culture is that when a practice is going to be implemented, it's effective. My other question was about how you got interested in this field, but I think you've answered it because you were talking about when you were an undergrad. Is that was sort of spearheaded? Since I started looking into this literature, I felt that it has great relevance even to myself, thinking of why there isn't more women in leadership positions. And one of the things that we talk about in our paper deals with this idea of leader categorization and how it's a two-step process. So the first step is the categorization by others that a woman is leader-like. But the second part is that the woman also has to see herself as leader-like and be willing to take on the leadership positions. <laughs> I've been asked to take on leadership positions in the past and in other associations, in my professional associations, and my first reaction is to say, no, what about that person and that person and, and so on. But thankfully, my sponsors and the advocates in my network were very mindful to say, look, Suman, you can do this. Yeah. And they've come back to me and say, let me talk to you about the position again 
again and you can do this. And I found that the asking again was actually quite effective and people have talked about that as well because the natural reaction for some women is to say no. And when somebody comes back and say, think about this again and look, you can do this. That itself, I think, was already quite powerful. So I think there's two parts to this. Other people have to see us as leader like, and we too have to step up. If we don't do that, then we're not fulfilling our part of this exchange. So I think that has been really interesting for me personally to reflect on my own behavior and to think about the students that we have here who are going into leadership positions and have the opportunity to do so. And so I bring my research into the classroom to help them think about what they're doing and how they're reacting to potential opportunities for leadership. It's their reaction to just say no immediately and why they're doing that and think about the consequences and the repercussions of that decision. And so I think that is something that women need to overcome and including myself in my particular case. And that's what other studies have found that even women who have demonstrated that they are more suitable for the role have higher competence than their male counterparts in that team, they still see the leadership position to their male colleagues because it's this sort of reluctance and resistance and they don't see themselves as leader-like. And part of it is also thinking about what happens when you become a leader and the worry of the entanglements or the challenges of being a female leader in an organization. And so that's against their identity or their values. So that contributes to the reluctance, but it has to be two sides, right? I like what you say about sometimes it just takes someone to say, you can do this. That is kind of the push that you need. I think so. So That certainly helped me. And of course, you know, here I am in this role. And honestly, I would not do this if I haven't had such an overwhelming display of support from Mm. my colleagues. Like you're all in this together. And yeah, yeah. no way. Yeah, I think you've touched on this. But no, I like to ask people if they could boil it down. What do they think is the impact of their work? So I think the impact of my research mainly lies in helping a few people think about a problem differently. So the example of expatriate management, turning the focus around and having people look on the other side of the coin. And so I've seen how my work has affected some people's thinking about a problem. And I find that absolutely rewarding. I think also with my research, I'm looking at how groups can work together and how categories are not necessarily detrimental to knowledge sharing has, I think, got some people thinking about the problem in a different way and how something that people might see as detrimental could, in fact, still have its uses or under what conditions would it have positive effect. And so I like to think that my work has helped people to think about some questions differently. That's great. It's like a shift in thinking. Yeah, I I like to think that. It's a small change bringing about a bigger change, though, right? Yeah, yeah, I hope so. And, you know, I like to think that my work helps people to think about themselves differently, too, and to reflect on what they do and what they do in the workplace, the decisions that they make, and sort of why they're doing what they're doing, how they're reacting to various situations. I think that has helped me in my own professional life to think about why am I responding to this interaction this way? Why am I responding to this decision in this way? Or why do I say yes or no to something? I hope that my work helps people think more about that in their own lives and I try to bring that like I said before into the classroom as well to get my students to reflect on their behavior and their decisions and the interactions to at least be mindful that whatever decisions that they make what they say they do has an impact on others hopefully have a positive impact. 
Coming up, UTM at 50. Having started here in 2003, Sue Min reflects on her time at UTM and the expansion of the Department of Management, as well as the launch of IMI in 2014, its subsequent evolution, and the team that keeps her focused for looking to the future. I've been at UTM since 2003. I came as assistant professor in organizational behavior. When I came, I was one of six hires for the Department of Management, and Hugh Guns was the chair at the time. And so it was an early path for the department, and we were growing. And so I was part of this first burst of growth. And obviously, since then, we've seen that momentum continuing and even accelerating in the last five to ten years years. In terms of change, our growth is certainly one thing. And in the early years, I think we were very much about building the place and building the people. So there was a lot of thought into hiring the right people, really good researchers, and people who were willing to help in this exercise building the place. And I feel like now we've come to a point where we've got lots of really great people, excellent researchers, and we are building our identity. And now we're starting to get really creative to have all our new faculty and a group of faculty working together. And I see that a lot now and much more so than before. So that's really exciting. We keep thinking about what we've become and what we're becoming. It's hard not to realize that we wouldn't be here, right, if it weren't for the key people who built the place. You know, Hugh Guns and Len Brooks and Mike Jalen, who, of course, has passed away, but they really were the ones who helped started that momentum for us and bringing us to where we are today. So, And so one of the more significant changes for UTM over the past couple of years, particularly for those of us who've been around UTM for a while, was the launch of the Institute for Management and Innovation, or what we call IMI. And I think it was launched in 2014. But for those of us who are around the campus, we see it as a bustling hub, and it's doing some great work in terms of research and academia, but also in reaching out to the internal and external community and beyond with its community building and entrepreneurial efforts. But for some others who it might still be a bit of a mystery or difficult to define in terms of what all IMI encompasses and the programs it offers. And of course, I realize that the Institute is still evolving, but I wondered if you could, as IMI's director, help to explain a bit more about what IMI currently is and its function within U of T and also within the UTM fold. Mm-hmm. I think what we see now, what IMI is, is really a community of researchers, faculty, students, and staff, and external partners um, centered around a number of programs. And we would like to think of these programs as quite innovative because they are quite distinct in the sense that they are uh, largely interdisciplinary with management at its heart, but at the same time combining management knowledge and skills with another discipline. For example, we have the M Biotech, the Master of Biotechnology, combines management and science uh, to train future leaders in the world of biotechnology and, and pharmaceuticals. So we're really quite unique 
in that combination of disciplines, combination of management education with another discipline. So our goal is to prepare the next generation of leaders, to contribute to our communities, to solve problems. And we strive to do this in an innovative way, bringing faculty from different disciplines, students from other backgrounds who are not just necessarily interested in management education, but looking at combining different disciplines. So we do that at the graduate level. I went to an event held here, and Uli mentioned how innovation has different meanings to different people. How do you define innovation? That's a very good question. And I think we can think of innovation in two ways. One is the product, and we look at that a lot. When we see something and it's different, or it's new, and it's useful, and we've never seen it before, and, and novel. But innovation can also be a process. Doing things in a different way, or looking at things in a different way, bringing together different ideas, bringing people together. It's not necessarily what the product is, but also how we go about solving problems as a process. I mean, we often see the product of really small changes and in incremental innovations, and we see those things as radical change, completely new, but we often forget that it was really a long process of small discoveries, and at some point, at the right time, somebody put all those little discoveries into something quite dramatic. And that's actually quite an interesting new research area that's developing about the identification of innovation. If you're looking for that definition, like to pin it down, I think it's extremely difficult to do so. But at the same time, I think that creates an opportunity that you can define it in any way. And that's what I like about IMI, that we can be really open to different ways of seeing things. I like to think of IMI as having like a set of directions, a set of possibilities, and not just necessarily fixing in one direction, because I think sometimes that prevents us from other opportunities to do something really different. I'm okay with some of that ambiguity, because I think that can be helpful. No, it sounds like what you're saying is that's also the part of being innovative, is that being open Mm -hmm. to other. And I like the way that you've sort of broken it down to it could be a product or it could be a product process because I think that that's true. I think that helps us to think about where we want to go and what we want to achieve. I think right now in IMI we have a set of rather unique programs. We fulfill a niche market. We're not a regular <laughs> set of master's programs that you would find in every university. I think we've quite successfully created our own identity in the professional master's world in developing our students and providing them with a really great experience that they can then bring to the workplace. So I think our program directors are amazing in constantly looking for ways to innovate. And by that, I mean looking for new ways to fulfill their mission, whether it's new design of existing courses and interesting ways to deliver their material. Right now, we're looking for ways in which we can have perhaps more plenary courses and experiences for the students across the programs to help them build the network, their experiences, and the community, right? We would also like our students to feel like they're part of the IMI community, UTM community in Mississauga. 
Emmy hosts IQ, uh, UTM, which is a business accelerator, or some would call it incubator, that offers early stage business development and commercialization services. For example, we have uh, an entrepreneurial curriculum, business advisory services, co-working space, expert speaker sessions, and a mentorship program. IQ has been the great hub for bringing in new ideas and people who are looking to develop new ideas. And they do a tremendous job of connecting Emmy and UTM TM to the community. There's always an event that brings in students. There was one event that brought in middle school students. They were pitching their ideas. There were these uh, great seven and eight kids with business cards and they had their products. And that was such a great experience for me to see that excitement in their faces. And they were all really ready to pitch their ideas and their products. And is it that if you bring an idea forward that you'll get feedback from iCube, though, too, on how you might want to change your business plan or your idea? So they do provide advice and help people go through that process of developing an idea till you know, the development of a product. So it's very much early stage business development and commercialization services. So they provide advice. They provide mentorship. And so the last question I have about UTM is the sorts of changes that you envisioned for Emmy while you're serving as its director, or where do you hope to take it for the next step? So I think Emmy, as it is right now, is well connected with the community, the developing you know, young minds to go out there and do you know, really interesting and important things. So we have tremendous strengths in our programs. What I would like to see moving forward is the continuing building of these programs, but at the same time, I think we need to also build our research mandate. I see IMI as a place in which we can bring people together, bring the resources that's necessary for scholarship. Researchers and scholars who are interested in looking at things in a different way or in a way that connects a discipline with another discipline, with one group or another group. And so I very much see IMI as a platform for that to occur. I see my role as a director of IMI to provide the resources for that to provide new resources for researchers who are interested in doing cross-disciplinary research, research that's connected to the programs that we already have, that's going to bring a group of researchers or people or professionals or external partners that we haven't thought of before and we haven't connected with. And so we, I think building IMI as a research institute as well as sort of a teaching institute is really where I would like to take this in the next few years. And so I will be working on thinking about what is necessary for that to happen. One of the things I think is really important is to build on our strengths that we have in research. And we have so much of that. We've got excellent researchers doing really important work and asking really important questions. We'd like to look for ways in which I can support that. And I feel like, I mean, it's a place in which we can fill the gaps for our researchers who are interested in doing cross-disciplinary research. And I see that as my mandate. That sounds great. Because I think too, like as you were saying about Emmy, I know that you've got a lot of cross-appointed faculty members, but it just seems like there is that 
opportunity for interdisciplinarity because there's 15 different departments at UTM, right? Mm -hmm. So there's Mm -hmm. that opportunity for collaboration. Yeah, I think there is a lot of opportunity in the fact that we're at UTM. We have really good conditions for that, and I don't think we do it enough. I think it would be so valuable for us to have discussions about a problem because I think across the campus, we are probably studying the same problems, but we're coming from a very different lens and we don't talk to each other as much. And I think if we did, it would be quite fascinating. I know not everybody thinks that way and people want to be purists in their own field and that's perfectly fine. But I think there's a lot of room for connecting and talking to people from a totally different discipline. That I think is key to really coming up with the innovation. So I think that's a challenge, but I think it could be quite a great thing that we can still do at UTM because we do have this sense of community. IMI could be a place where we can encourage that way in which we can connect with our community, with Mississauga and beyond. We're really good at organizing and running events. I have to say that's one of our strengths and we do a lot of that and we do it really well. We had the Bank of Canada conference here on China that was spearheaded by the Department of Economics and that brought people from the Bank of Canada and all these top macroeconomics researchers here and that was amazing. The conversations we had, the discussions we had and just bringing people to Mississauga was quite a tremendous experience. Our faculty members and the researchers that are affiliated with IMI are really top of their field whether in industry or in research and we do a lot of that and I want to continue to encourage that and also to continue that dialogue and exchange of ideas. But see that totally goes along with my perception of IMI it's just it does seem to be this bustling hub of ideas but also there's events and there's just all this activity. Yeah absolutely and we have an amazing staff that keeps it going. People that seem genuinely happy to be here which is just fantastic. You can feel it when you walk down the hall. Yeah and so I think that the culture that we have here right that excitement and this commitment to doing the work here believing in that mission of coming up with new ways to do things and the importance of scholarship and importance of our students and developing those students I think that's a very genuine sentiment here that I think our staff bring with them and they work really hard and I think that can be attributed to the leaders that were here before me they really built that culture Hugh was absolutely amazing and being very supportive of the staff and giving them the space to come up with their projects and coming up with new ideas for doing these things that's great it's been a real pleasure listening to you and more of your work thank you very much thank you for talking to me thank you I would like to thank everyone for listening to today's View to the U show. I would like to thank my guest, Sue Min Cho, for taking the time to speak about her work in the Department of Management and about IMI. Thank you to the Office of the Vice Principal Research for their support, for everyone who has been helping to promote this podcast, and for all the great feedback I've received. Thank you to Tim Lane for his tunes and support. Also, if you have a moment, please rate the podcast in iTunes, which helps others to find this podcast. And if there are things you would like to see featured in upcoming shows, I welcome the feedback directly. My contact details are on our SoundCloud page. Thank you.